Evil, evil lamp though. That sounds, uh, that sounds fucking retarded. Radio Drome. It's a special Halloween edition of Radio Drome. No, we're not going to be looking at the Halloween movies. We did that like two or three years ago. This was like one of Brad's last episodes, and I think Diamanda Hagen was on. All these things kind of blend together after a while. I'm Josh Hadley. With me nearly as always is Poter the Rotor. Things are just too spooky. Too spooky for me, Josh. Cecil won't be joining us this week because he didn't get his work done, and like a bad boy, he's having to cram. So... Cecil is not available this week, so in his place, we have Darren, who I decided I guess I would torture with these. Don't get into them yet, Darren, but is that accurate? That That is accurate. I found that I'm, I am not quite the fan, apparently. But you call, you know what, third time's a <laughs> charm, so here I am. Might as well get one that doesn't quite work. <laughs> but you got to realize, tonight's train wreck was kind of your idea. It was, and it was educational. I think I can say that. <laughs> So before we get into what we're going to be doing for our special Halloween haunted edition of Radiodrome, I don't know what object it would be, but if you wanted to get an object that may or may not be cursed, it may or may not be from the Lutz's house or the DeFeo family, you could go to adamandeve.com. Smooth as fucking silk, huh, Peter? <laughs> yes, get a nice haunted dildo. A haunted butt plug. You know, it all comes <laughs> out the, it all comes out in the end. So you go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you would get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. May or may not be haunted. You would get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. Probably not to Amityville, New Jersey. Or is that New York? I think it's New Jersey. But we're going to be talking about the Amityville franchise. A franchise that, and I say this with most of the obscure franchises we do, most people probably forget is an actual franchise. And probably don't remember that this thing went on way longer than anybody remembered it going on. Before we get into the individual films, what did you think of the Amityville franchise as a whole? Rewatching as much of it as I could, I don't think I remember it being quite this cheesy and then bad. I mean, I, I did like a few of the entries. I actually quite enjoy two. Uh, I really enjoyed Dollhouse. The original, of course, is great. And I think that even though the remake um, borrows a little bit from uh, Poltergeist, I still quite enjoyed it a lot. I still have to, like, I mean, yes, bad boy me, not, uh, not catching the other two or three sequels, but I, I think... It's kind of fun. It's a bit schlocky. Some of the some of them are real misses, but some of them were were a lot of fun. Like I watched uh, I watched Dollhouse with my girlfriend, and we had a, a shitload of fun laughing at that one and enjoying it, and and kind of being creeped out by the bugs going in people's ears, and the demons look kind of cool in them and shit. So I, I don't know. It's it's a hit and miss series. Uh, the first one, of course, a classic. The second one's not bad, and some of them are just straight up schlocky. I sort of see it as an as almost an average horror series like you're gonna have some really cheesy ones and you're gonna have a couple that are really fun and you have you have the remake that was going to happen whether you like it or not because all of these you know long-going horror franchises tend to get them so i think as a whole it's it's fun it's not great it's one of those movies where the first one's definitely the best one but yeah eh, it's all right 
So yeah, so for me it was uh I I thought the dynamic was inconsistent at best. I the whole storyline of what the focus was, what really motivated it, it did feel like they were, they got a bit out of track throughout the whole series. Um you could you could never predict what the next movie was going to kind of be about. Uh I think that's really what detracted from the consistency was you just didn't know what you were kind of in for this time around because there wasn't a whole lot of continuity canon became kind of uh random and uh i think that was the biggest problem with the series is it just didn't keep a solid focus on what defined it and it kind of changed it too often and almost became i don't use the word silly but you know in the fashion where i'd rather just watch a good horror film about the context rather than it being amityville per se let's go back and give a little history here Amityville, the original 1979, the Amityville Horror, is supposedly based on a, in quotes, true story of what happened to the Lutz family. The story goes, and keep putting all of these things in quotes here, that in 1976, George Lutz and his new family bought the a house in Amityville, and it was haunted, and 28 days later, they were driven out of the house, blah, blah, blah. It became a best-selling novel. They became famous. They were on The Tonight Show and talk shows. And it became one of the most famous, quote, real hauntings ever. And it was made into a 1979 movie. George Lutz still insists everything in that book and movie really happened. On the other hand, the book has been debunked. The book and the true story have been debunked on almost every conceivable way you can. The police who were supposedly involved say it didn't happen. The priest keeps changing his story. Nothing is consistent with the Lutzes. They kept changing their story. The DeFeo murders, which took place a year prior, those really did happen, but there is so much inconsistency with that. To call the Amityville Horror a true story is really stretching the word true, although uh, unto his death in 2006, George Lutz still stood by this really happened. It's just been debunked by everyone else. So take that as you will as we move on in here. The book is written, and it becomes a huge success. Inevitably, a movie was going to get made. And that was The Amityville Horror in 1979 by, of all people, Sam Arkoff. This was an AIP film, which is just the strangest thing, and directed by Stu Stuart Rosenberg, director of Cool Hand Luke, starring... Starring Margot Kidder coming right off of Superman and James Brolin with a small role by Rod Steiger. Here's the problem. Boring as hell. I wouldn't call it boring. I would call it, you know, slow burn supernatural horror. And I, I like the vibe of it. And I, I liked uh, James Brolin as the dad. You know, Margot Kidder was was good before she went insane in the later Superman films. I think it's one of those kind of genre defining uh, supernatural horror classics that were that were kind of better then than a lot of what they're trying to do now. And it, it had that, you know, tapering off of the late 70s vibe. And there was that cool, creepy element of, you know, th these this family was killed in this house before this family moved in. And that being the only true part of the whole story, how accurate or not it is, uh, still kind of adds a creepy factor to it. I mean, whether it whether it happened or not, there are so many supernatural cases that have happened to this person and that person. So I, I think 
whether or not it did, however it was debunked or whatever, I think there are enough people who believe in this sort of stuff to where a movie like the Amityville Horror still very much stands up today, and just with how scared shitless people are of ghosts and, and supernatural happenings. So I, I consider it um, to be a pretty damn good film and to consider it a uh, definitely a classic in the in the horror genre, especially when it comes to the, the supernatural stuff. To me, it's one of the uh, standout uh, supernatural flicks. The original had a great basic premise, and the basic premise worked very well. I, I have to admit that, like we had kind of said with, with Poltergeist and Exorcist, I feel like there's a lot kind of coming into ties there, like the, either being inspired by or being inspired from, etc. really think that the key part of that movie was James Brolin. Without him, that movie wouldn't have worked. His performance was far and away beyond the other people in that movie, and without his class there... Uh, it's it's it wouldn't stand up. It's funny because I would almost would have wished that his son could have reprised the role in the in the remake. It's funny to see that level of performance be there. One thing I noticed that were kind of interesting was the camera work, the cinematography. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I picked up on it substantially. Where they always kept the camera below the person. There was usually the camera was never it was always looking up to people. It never had an eye level viewpoint, and it kind of always made you feel like you're being watched from the ground up. I think some of the other interesting aspects of it, of trying to set up the whole mythology and all that, did a really good job not overdoing it, not playing out too much and leaving a little bit of skepticism to the whole dynamic of what's really kind of happening to make the outside world work well, you know, make them understand that, hey, maybe or maybe not, we don't know. I think the ambiguity made the story that much better and made the ending, while abrupt, appropriate, considering I don't think there's a better answer to what to do in that situation besides get the hell out of there. So. And see, I just did not enjoy this one. I mean, I love slow burn films like the like Peter said. This to me was just dull. Maybe it's the editor in me, but this movie did not need to be just under two hours long. I, I actually kind of did a little estimate in my head. If I edited out every scene of somebody driving somewhere, walking somewhere, or or the establishing shot of somebody just eating dinner or something and it's staying on them for 10 to 15 seconds longer than it needs to before anything happens, I could have cut a half hour out of this movie and it would have improved the movie to me. To me, this movie is so beyond padded and really nothing happens. There are so many useless subplots that this felt like a pilot for a TV series where they kept introducing subplots that would pay off later, like Margot Kidder's aunt being a nun. She shows up, she freaks out, and then she's never mentioned again. The whole thing with losing the money at the brother's wedding. It's there for five minutes, and then it has no bearing on the plot, and it's never mentioned again. The whole movie seems to be that for me. It's We're setting up all these things that never get payoffs. Yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. I mean... Things you found dull, I thought, were kind of building up suspense and building up tension. It hasn't been too long since I've seen it. It's it's one that I, I didn't really watch uh, for for this because I had seen it semi-recently, so I remember enough about it. But maybe it's because I just didn't watch it again. But, I mean, I remember enjoying it, and I've seen it several times. So, yeah, I guess we're just seeing it different ways and taking things in other ways because, yeah, I... That's that's one of the ones that I always enjoy whenever I watch it. And I fully agree that all the performances in it are decent, but James Brolin really does make it. Like he's uh he's just one of those solid actors that are just always awesome to watch. Well, this film being a hit was kind of a surprise to everybody because you gotta remember AIP, especially at this time, they were they were putting out 
low-budget films. I mean, $4.7 million is not necessarily low-budget, but for them, that was big-budget. But they weren't competing with 20th Century Fox or anything. This film made $86 million in 1979. Wow. That's a monster hit. Part Partially, I think part of it was not the movie itself. Part of it was... The fact that the Lutzes were on all the talk shows and they were on the Tonight Show and whatnot talking about how this was true. Remember, this was sold as a true story. I really don't know if they didn't have the, the true story angle to play off of if this film would have found the same audience in 1979. Well, I think uh, it might not have. I mean, even today we see how now we, people get applied to making believe that maybe, hey, this could be true or could be real. And it attracts a wider audience. It still works today, whether it's Blur Witch or even um, Paranormal Activity. People want to pretend like things potentially could be real. Uh, I think that's a big attractor, a big big piece there. But just to go back and mention a comment on the, the storylines, especially the elements, um, I think it's critical to be able to make something believable that it's real in some ways to have these weird story strands and seemingly un, unrelated pieces in there to help build the tension and build the reality. These are real people. Even though they may not have payoff in the original story, they might have been extremely important as far as building the tension. And I think that while can be annoying and sometimes slow, I think if we were without some of those things, we wouldn't have it. But I do agree that that helps bring it to life and make it feel like it's more like this really kind of happened. I think those little distractions are key to that, in my opinion. Well, none of the other films will deal with that, except maybe the remake. So this film being a huge hit, you knew a sequel was bound at some point. Now, instead of AIP making the sequel, Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights. So you knew this was going to go in a really bizarre, very exploitative direction with Dino involved. Yeah, um, Amityville 2 is uh, definitely sleazy, and uh, Dino being part of it is, is uh, yeah, it's no surprise by how... Uh how weird and, and kind of exploitative and sleazy that one is. And I actually really quite enjoyed too. I think, um, I mean, arguably a lot of people prefer the first film in the franchise, but I, I honestly think the second one's the best one. Well, see, this time it's not a sequel. For some reason, Dino decided to make a prequel. Even though it's called Amityville 2 The Possession, it takes place before the Lutz, Lutzes move in, but I don't know if for legal reasons or not, since the DeFeo murders were a real thing, he might not have been able to secure the rights. They are now the Montelli family, and they're not called the DeFeos. It takes place in 1975, but it was so clearly made in 1982. All the hairstyles <laughs> are 1982. All the cars are 1982. The son is listening to a Walkman, which didn't exist in 1975. Yeah. When they drive downtown, there's 1982 movie posters and, and marquees up. So they, they, they keep telling us this movie is 1975, but they did nothing to make it 1975, which right away pisses me off. This one has, I guess Dino needed to sleaze it up, weird incest plot line. Oh, Bet God. Between the oldest son and Diane Franklin. That was a, that was like some flowers in the attic shit there. And it really got a little more graphic than I was comfortable with, knowing that these characters mm -hmm. were full-blood brother and sister. This was creepy. This one is basically, it, it's essentially a prequel that doesn't try to be a prequel to the original. This one's based off Murder in Amityville by... Hans Holzer, who, who chronicled the DeFeo murders, which is why I don't understand why they're not the DeFeos. It had to have been a, a legal thing. The second film I thought was exactly how you put it. I thought it was kind of just like you, it was slapped together. It was a solution. It was like, well, can we take the same formula and figure out how to just make it work over again? 
I think they literally just did that. It, it felt sloppy and felt cheap. It felt like a major downgrade from the first film. It was almost like, well, am I watching kind of like the same film, but just crappier? I guess is the best way of putting it. I, it's like, why, why would you do that? But I guess if you want, if you want to do something quick, cheap, and based on your guys' understanding of what this character is that put this the second one together and took over the rights in that case, then well, it makes total sense. Take the script, take the original script, rework it, and then make it a prequel. Why not? And then boom, done. Solves the problem. Makes it cheap. Didn't do well in box office though, did it? Relative to the original? 11.7 million, which is, you know, compared to the box office of the original, no, but compared to the fact that it only had a $2 million budget, still a pretty big hit for Dino. This one, though, started to, the, the critics were okay with the first film. A lot of critics for the first film were like, it's not great, it's not awful, it actually is. But on the other hand, the critics were not kind to this one. This one they savaged as essentially, ironically enough, they could, this one, and I see what they're talking about, the critics kept comparing as an Omen and Exorcist ripoff more than an Amityville film, and really, I can see it. I can see a lot more Omen and Exorcist in this than Amityville. Oh, yeah, um, and I think that may be why I enjoyed it, because I could kind of see the... Uh... The kind of uh, rip-off exploitation element there. Like, even, like, the, the demonic makeup when the brother is, like, going more and more into the possession. He looks a lot like Linda Blair's makeup at the end of Exorcist. Oh, the uh, last the, five minutes are straight yeah. up a rip-off of that makeup. Absolutely, and it's even an exorcism going on and everything, and it's it's the demon possessing the priest, and it, it almost goes, like, beat for beat with the exorcist, but it has this, like, sleazy, grainy, grimy feel that I just... I love in, in like exploitation cinema and, and just the whole, the incest angle was, ah, I really have to give credit to, um, uh, the, who played the brother and who played the, uh, the, the young sister. I, I can't, I don't know what actors they were, but I, I felt like there was a real tension there after, you, you know, what you, happened. You didn't recognize Diane Franklin from better off dead as the sister. I did not. <laughs> But yeah, she was good, and so was the brother, and just like the the tension between, I don't know if maybe things were actually uncomfortable on set or what, but like you could feel a, a genuine awkwardness there, and also, I mean, Burt Young as the uh, abusive alcoholic father, I mean, Uncle Polly, you can never go wrong with Uncle Polly. I just, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. I know it was sloppy, I know it was thrown together, but it just felt like a, a sleazy exploitation flick, and uh, quite frankly, I, I kind of enjoyed that shit. I think that the film just shouldn't, it should be skipped, but, you know, that's <laughs> my, my take on it. I mean, yeah, it, it's interesting to say that they that they pushed limits in some areas and tried some risque things, but I, I still don't think that that helped the overarching story. It just felt, again, like a rehash with some extra, like, little bells and whistles that weren't that good. But the production value, I, obviously the production value went down, needing to get more into, like, the whole series. Like, we don't need the supernatural elements as far as them being visualized. Also, we need them to be ambiguous. You know, you don't know. And I think that's one thing the series continues to do. It continues to dive down and make it more, like, in-your-face, hey, supernatural stuff, rather than making it kind of like, well, you don't know for sure. You kind of have to judge. And I think this film wants to, like, show you rather than having you be able to, like, try to figure out what's really the truth. Well, th there was a little bit of controversy about this film. Ironically enough, not for the incest angle. The real-life George and Kathy Lutz sued because they didn't want this prequel to, you know, because, again, they stuck by till their deaths that this was a true story, and they didn't want a non-true prequel. So they sued, but they, they ultimately lost. 
And then the mom won a Razzie Award for Worst Actress, Burt Young's wife in this. <laughs> yeah, she was awful. She was really bad. I don't know why she was. Maybe she was the real life mom of, you know, maybe she was Dino's sister or something. I don't know. But she was <laughs> so miscast. So this one, again, it, it, it did way above its budget. So it was a bomb, but it wasn't a bomb. So you knew another sequel was coming. Mm. Immediately in 1983, Dino again decided to rush out Amityville 3D. Amityville 3, The Demon, as it's known in Europe. Same film. This time it's an actual sequel, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with the Lutzes due to the lawsuit that Dino had last time. This time it's a completely, quote, original story. Parts of this movie work. I was really taken aback by the first 10 minutes of Amityville 3D. The first 10 minutes of this movie are so clever and so well done. It pissed me off how bad the rest of the movie was. Because the first 10 minutes of this one are a husband and wife going to a psychic who is using the Amityville house to contact their dead son. And it turns out that the husband and wife are actually investigative reporters exposing the psychic as a fraud. And I thought, that is such a brilliant way to take the Amityville film. And then it goes to, oh, except the ghosts really are there too. Kind of like they wanted to have it both ways. You can't do that. This one... Special effects are terrible. The 3D is god-awful. The movie is really about nothing. There's maybe a half hour <laughs> of story in this 90-minute movie. And other than the first 10 minutes and the last minute or so when Robert Joy gets pulled into the pool by the demon, which is a really awesome scene, there's nothing worthwhile about Amityville 3. And the critics and audiences thought the same thing. Ugh! Awful. It was easily my least favorite one to watch, and I remember hating it before, too, and just rediscovering it was even worse. I do agree that the the opening was cool, and it set up kind of what could have been a decent premise with the investigating re investigative reporters debunking, like, fake psychics and stuff. And then they kind of just drop that. They drop the characters they developed. Nobody seems to be doing what they were doing before. People are just kind of dying randomly. There are these, like, random science tests and, and shit on the, the photos taken at the house, and the movie just kind of neanders for like a good 40 minutes and does nothing, and then a demon pops out of a well at the end, and then the movie just kind of ends. It, it just feels like it went absolutely nowhere and was an absolute chore to sit through. Amityville 3D just, just plain sucks. So I agree, and I can throw out some very comic elements to this. So then, it, like, the guy, so Robert Joy, apparently the one who played West, by the whole time they kept saying West, all I could think of was Reanimator. But coincidentally, when <laughs> Reanimator took place, it was was shot after this. But you, yeah, whatever. Either way, I kept thinking West of like Reanimator. It's like the same thing. Like you could imagine this guy being that guy. But anyway, they, they're trying to make it seem creepy for for sensory deprivation. It's like not not working. And then full circle, we come to the end. It's like oh, I've got all this cool stuff. We're gonna do this ghost thing. And it's gonna be awesome at the end. That's a total then, poltergeist ripoff. Did it, anyone it, else get the vibe that this was a straight-up poltergeist ripoff with all the camera yeah. equipment and the mics and everything? But it was there for so brief. It wasn't. It didn't. It was there for like five minutes, and then all hell breaks loose, basically. Yeah. I saw. I mean, yeah, it, like it had that element there, but it's like, well, we're just. It's expensive, so we're gonna keep it here briefly. We're already shooting 3D, right? So might as well make it cheaper. But no, yeah. when you get to the end. I just can't. I. I oh, my thought. I just started dying laughing when the scream <laughs> came out of Robert's mouth to the demon. 
Like, his scream is so ridiculous and over the top. It's like, okay, I can't take any of this serious from what's going on. <laughs> and then all the ridiculous house being torn down, like, things exploding, people being flown around. It's like, is this, am I watching Twister now? Is there, a, is there, is there like, a, a, a tornado outside? So I don't know. I mean, it, it got kind of, and then the house blows up, right? Which I'm, you know, hopefully people have seen this at this point. But it's like, come on. It's like, what in the world are we watching? I just, like, I was... I, cool i guess i like that action house, and explosions that house blows up for like three fucking hours it just yeah it just keeps up. going <laughs> every conceivable angle that you could blow up a house every just oh this is the most expensive shot in the movie we, we gotta show this as many fucking times as possible well, like I, i'm sure with dino they had that thing covered by eight different cameras and he said we're using all of them yep <laughs> Well, keep yeah. in mind, this movie was shot on the uh, the AeroVision 3D system, which only other two films out there were shot. It was Jaws 3D, and or Jaws 3D, 3D, and Friday the 3D. And honestly, the of the, of the three, as far as my opinion goes, I think Jaws it looks the best from what I've seen. But I, I can't imagine the expense. This was not an easy thing to do to shoot this in 3D and to make it look yeah. good and all the lighting you have to do and everything else. It's like... It, I'm not, you can tell that it's not quite right. Even on seeing it on a lower quality VHS type version, you can tell it's not up to snuff. I mean, you could tell. It, you know, it has a weird softness to it, which is part of the 3D process, I think. That even when you're watching it 2D, it has a weird soft image, didn't it? It does. Which, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I actually like it. I like the, at least I felt it worked for Friday the 13th Part 3 because it, it kind of worked with the whole camp slasher thing, but with the, with Jaws 3D and, and for this one, like, it just, it, it, I don't know. It felt like it just didn't fit. Well, this one really doesn't fit in, because we're going to be talking about continuity a lot. So, okay, the second film wrecks the continuity by changing the family and the origin. Well, now this one, in the first two films, remember the gateway to hell was built into a wall in the basement and it was a red room. Now it's mm -hmm. a well in the floor. Okay, no explanation for that. At the end of the second film, which, remember, is a prequel, the house burns down. Apparently no one remembered that for when the first film comes around. Now the house explodes. By the way, the house will be fine in all the other sequels. They, <laughs> no one cared at this point. But I do want to point out there's, there is one thing that people need to see this movie for. Meg Ryan's first movie role. Oh, God. As Lori Laughlin's <laughs> best friend. She's only in like five to ten minutes of footage, but Meg Ryan rocking that, that early 80s leather jacket, huh? <laughs> so this one failed at the box office, made $6.3 which it only cost $5 million, so technically broke even. But this one was savaged by the critics even worse. This one was called the most pointless. Seriously, Siskel and Ebert called this the most pointless sequel ever made at the time it came out. They're not necessarily wrong either. It really has no point other than Dino still had the rights and he wanted to make a movie. Mm -hmm. So this this would be the end of Amityville for a good six years, but also the last time until the remake that we'd have a theatrical Amityville. You know, video comes along and these films are playing on cable and whatnot. The Lutzes are still suing anybody that's calling them a faker. And then, for some reason, NBC decided they were going to make a TV movie. Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes. This time, being a TV movie, very low budget, they decided we're not, we can't have the Amityville house anymore, although they do have a few shots of it. But this time, it's one of the lamps in the Amityville house contains the evil. And when that lamp is sold at a yard sale, 
The Evil Escapes to California. Seriously, this one is about a haunted lamp from the Amityville house in California spreading its evil. And it's a TV movie. So it this this one goes about as well as you'd expect. Jesus. I have I don't even know. I barely even remember this one and I, I did not watch it for the retrospective. Evil evil lamp though. That sounds uh that sounds fucking retarded. Yeah, yeah, the lamp is it, you would never want this lamp. So I don't under, that, that, to start oh, there. No, a, no, was, no, I'm going to stop you. That's an okay. awesome evil looking lamp. <laughs> yeah. It looks like something Tim Burton would have designed. I want that lamp actually. <laughs> it, it it is is horribly disfigured, gross looking thing and it's $100, only $100 by the way to to take the wow. evil with you. So it was only $100. But so they get this lamp and they take and they ship it. They ship it across country, and plus they have this whole dynamic with the whole finger getting infected by getting cut on it, and that whole ridiculous, unnecessary subplots. We give terrible subplots, something that goes nowhere. Someone who bought it over to go see her, and we're going to figure out what happened, and her finger, and she's in the hospital, and we get nothing from her. And it's like, (laughs) why? Why do we care? We spent like probably 15 minutes of the movie tracking this this lady who bought the lamp and sent it to her relative. It's like, why do we care? And we get nothing from it. Absolutely, besides the fact that she dies. And then the lamp's just like, just there. Just stare at me and be possessed and stuff, you know. I did appreciate the explosion of it out the window at the end. That was always a good moment. So I, I, I think the explosions are good in these movies at this point. They like blowing things up and setting things on fire. But like the execution <laughs> and the believability of being afraid of a lamp just doesn't... But it's no, it, Darren, see, you don't get it. It's not just the lamp. It Remember, the evil goes down the electric cord into the house, so it's also... It's also an evil garbage disposal, cuts a guy's hand off. It's got evil plumbing. It kills a guy under the house, a plumber. It's it's got evil lights. It's got evil it's got an evil chainsaw that was plugged into the wall. Remember, so this is just now evil appliances in general. Uh it's maximum overdrive. Yeah. Have a it should it should it should have been in that movie. It would have been more fitting. I got this great power, guys. We're gonna we're gonna kill everyone with leaky sewage pipes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, this film ends on a, quote, happy ending. They destroy the lamp, no one else dies, and everyone just goes back to living in the house. Did they forget about the plumber that died under there that nobody found? So he's just going to rot under the house for a while? With the cat, with those eyes, the really Yeah, they were setting up a sequel. Oh, it's like, what? The cat's possessed now? You've got Norman Lloyd as the father here from St. Elsewhere. Patty f***ing Duke as our main character. And you won't recognize him out of makeup, but Aaron Eisenberg as the youngest son. <laughs> Peter, you might recognize him more as Nog from Deep Space Nine. Oh, Jesus Christ. This one, obviously being a TV movie, I don't have any numbers on what kind of a, what kind of business it did. NBC didn't make any more TV movies out of this franchise, so I assume it bombed really, really hard. But now we've got the whole thing where we don't have to be in Amityville anymore. Now, like, this one takes place in California. It's About Time takes place in California. New Generation takes place in New York. So now the Amityville, the evil is spreading. The next one we come to, the Amityville Curse. This one was not theatrical. This was direct-to-video. This one's the most bizarre of them all. I would almost call this one a rip-off rather than an actual Amityville movie because this one did not license like the others did. Like Amityville 4 was an official sequel. Some of the next ones we're going to talk about are official licensed sequels. Amityville Curse, see, what they found out was 
Amityville's a real place, and you can't copyright the name of a town. Anybody could make, technically make an Amityville sequel as long as they don't refer to it as the Amityville horror or the specific events of the Amity of the first three movies, because those are all licensed as well. So the Amityville Curse, Canadian direct-to-video ripoff. This thing was shot in Canada, and holy crap, does it look like Canada, it, even though it's supposed to take place in America. It was shot on film and edited on video, so it literally looks like a Tales from the Dark Side episode does. It doesn't feel like a movie at all. And the only actor you'd even come close to recognizing is a when the hell is my career going to take off Kim Coates in this movie. <laughs> the movie is so physically dark, it's hard to see what's going on. And you can see this is so low budget. I would not have been surprised if this was made as like a TV movie in Canada and only released on video later. Because this feels so cheap. Amityville Curse is arguably the most unwatchable of all of the Amityville movies. Did you you said you did watch this one, right, Peter? I did, but I it feels like I didn't. There's like, nothing I to wa- remember. I watched it and almost immediately forgot the whole thing other than like Kim Coates. That's it. All I remember about this movie is Kim Coates. Yeah, so I did watch it. This is the most forgettable of the series. I thought it was a little bit weird. They really brought in the dynamics of the church a lot more to this one. And as far as getting stuck in, like, the confessional and all that, it just seemed kind of bizarre. I don't know. Oh, and the weird eyeball lady. They could take her eyeball out. I remember that. That was funny and weird. And she's like, oh, look at it. Removable. You don't remember anything important. That's the problem. Darren, you're a filmmaker. Do you see what I'm talking about, how this whole thing felt visually like a tales from the dark side episode the way it was shot on fi- on 16 millimeter and then edited on video gave it this weird neither video nor film look it looked like a mid-80s tv show oh absolutely yeah no question about that it, it does look relatively clean but it does feel like it should be like on tv um i think more so because of the high contrast lighting they did the lighting isn't very complicated usually it's mostly one source for most of the sequences i think that probably adds to the uh, cheap feel as far as how it's been shot they didn't have much dynamic lighting through most of the sequences it's mostly harsh and high contrast so this one again being video i don't have any numbers on this and that's where we're going to go until the to until the remake in 2005 then we go to the next official sequel amityville it's about time or as my vhs says amityville 1992 it's about time this time we have a cursed clock from the amityville house this one was not an amityville movie even before hellraiser did it this movie hellraiser their scripts they had pre-existing like haunted house or haunted object scripts once they got the amityville franchise were reworked into being Amityville movies. A friend of mine did the special effects for this one. He built the clock, he built the little model town in it, and he did some of the makeup effects. He still has the broken clock from the ending in his basement. And he says when K&B got the contract for this, it was not an Amityville movie. Yeah, this one was a shoehorned in Amityville movie. And this time you've got the clock, which it's ostensibly plays with time travel in in the new house in California, except for the fact that really it's more alternate reality than time travel because it's more what ifs of right now instead of like them going back to pirate times or something. This one to me is more of an alternate reality movie than it is about a time travel movie. There's one thing to take away from this one. Megan Ward 
gets molested by a mirror version of Megan Ward. That alone should be enough to get you to check out It's About Time. Uh, not rewatching wise, but uh, I do remember watching it on TV a long time ago, and I just remember it being very, very cheesy and funny. Uh, I wish I was able to watch it. Um, unfortunately, I guess I just did not have the time. But yeah, I remember finding it comedic. So I might be a bit biased. So a good friend of mine happened to have directed it, Tony Randell, who's known for directing Hellraiser 2, actually directed this this sequel to Amityville. I, I again, I thought it was uh, I thought it was one of the more interesting ones because of the time travel motif. Uh, it had a little more dynamics. There was more directness about what could actually happen through a device with time travel. Then again, I'm a big fan of Back to the Future and time travel films and alternate reality type stuff. So this one kind of plays in. And I might also be a little bit biased through the fact that Tony directed it. Overall, the production value was good. The look was good. Um, the acting was pretty solid. It had some solid casts in it. I thought it was a relatively good. But again, you could see very well that it, it was definitely not originally meant to be an Amityville film meant to be just uh, you know a story about a this possessed clock more or less i thought it did a good job and i thought it tied it up tight of all the films actually I thought it did a very good job tying itself up at the end because a lot of the films they just like explode or just leave you completely hanging this one had a nice resolution that was kind of interesting at the end of the film the other ones kind of don't give you see i, I didn't like this one i know this one was one of cecil's favorites but i don't know this one just didn't do anything for me which which also brings us to our next film amityville a new generation the, Amityville, A New Generation is probably one of the most 90s movies I have ever seen in my entire life. Everything in this movie is so 90s. The hair, the looks, the clothes, the music, the editing, the way this thing is shot, the, the attitudes of the characters. This is one of the most 90s movies ever. On the other hand, it's got a weird cast. Terry O'Quinn. Robert Russler, Richard Roundtree, David Naughton. You've got Julian Nixon Soul, or for Peter, Amityville Not Expendable. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. Cobal Rambo 2. Yes. She plays <laughs> Suki in this. I couldn't get over how 90s this movie was. It's not really that well written. It's definitely not that well made. Although Richard Roundtree steals the three scenes he's in. He clearly is having a ball in the three scenes he's in david naughton looks uncomfortable terry o'quinn looks like i'm too good for this but i've got an alimony payment i, I don't know well robert russell only has two scenes and he looks like he's drunk and he his character's drunk in both of them and he actually looks like he was drunk so that may be how they have <laughs> robert russler in this this one's about a haunted mirror that also goes back to the defeo murders of the first amityville but that doesn't link up time-wise because if keys terry was the defeo killer as this movie says then in 1993 he wouldn't be in his early 20s because he, he would have been in his early 20s in 1975 and i'm overthinking this aren't i this movie um again it just was again weird because it was arbitrary how they came about getting the mirror the whole dynamics behind that whole storyline it, it was it seemed like it was like thrown together oh this this and it seemed like the characters were too dumb or too silly to kind of put things together i think it kind of underestimates people's intelligence as far as characters go and it really annoyed me from that vantage point i thought that the ending with the weird seat tv shotgun thing was a bit like <laughs> like over the top this being the early 90s new york it's about about a bunch of struggling artists and they're making performance art. So Rich, Richard Roundtree has arguably the most 90s piece of art ever. 
It is a Barco lounger chair covered in barbed wire, sitting in front of a television with a CCTV monitor or camera on the top, along with a loaded shotgun that is set to go off on a timer to pull the trigger at some point in the next 24 hours so you can watch yourself get killed while vegging out on the TV like the metaphorical zombies that TV is making all of us. Is that not the most 90s piece of performance art ever? Oh, Christ. Yeah, uh, that's one I vaguely remember as well. One of the ones I would watch in the old UPN horror marathons come Halloween-y time when I was about 13 or 14. Unfortunately, I did not rediscover it for this uh, for this particular episode, but I do remember Robert Russler being in it, and uh, I do remember Richard Roundtree and stuff like that. Um, I would like to go rediscover that one because, you know, I like Robert Russler. He was, he was cool in the gayest Nightmare on Elm Street uh, franchise entry. No, it's it it's you are right on. It's pretty ridiculous. It's it yeah. just, it's fitting. I don't think there's any way to describe it better than that. To to add into the dynamics behind the uh, rest of the story, I I thought it was also ridiculously hilarious that they would choose to eventually shoot a um, cooked turkey or chicken with the shotgun randomly. For those filmmakers out there that like random bits of information, Wally Fister happened to be the cinematographer for this movie, who would go on to shoot the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, Inception, and then direct Transcendence. So, wow. Just to put it in perspective, you know, you would never know because I didn't qualify the cinematography as being very amazing, to be honest with you. But, you know, you got to start somewhere, and he did work before it as well. But uh, definitely check it out if you want to see where he came from and where he's at now. I think it'd be, it's a very cool starting point for people. Also, if you didn't live in the 90s, just watch this movie. This is the 90s personified. It really is. It's also not a very good movie. Uh, Although I will say, Lynn Shea has two scenes as one of the most psycho nurses I have ever seen. She was freaky. I don't, I, she just got into it and it's like, wow, you're a cartoon character. I've hoped, yeah. I hope, I hope that they're, I hope that they told you to do this because if I was directing, I'd be like, you're a bit nuts. So then we go to the last one, 1996's Amityville Dollhouse, which again, not an Amityville film until they got the rights to it, and then they made it that, so the Amityville connections are barely there. This one was so ridiculous, I almost felt that that was the point. That This one is so ridiculous and played so arguably straight that it almost came across, it almost came across like that was intentional, that, that they were making a straight-faced parody of what an Amityville sequel was, but probably not. I think you're very right. It does. It feels so over the top and cheesy at times that it does feel like it's maybe a parody, but it also feels very earnest at the same time. I felt like they were going for genuinely creepy at a lot of moments, like when uh, when the older son's girlfriend gets her head like burned up, uh, the the bug scene, uh, the the stepson's army dad coming in and getting more and more zombified and wanting him to like kill the family and stuff like that. Uh, There were moments where it felt like it was genuinely trying to be creepy. And then there was the mom going after the dad's, you know, the hunky stepson getting all turned on by his photo. And it's like every time it shows the photo while she's having sex with the husband, it like will zoom in on his face, like more and more getting closer on his face and like the basketball rolling into the to the shot when she would like watch him playing out in the the front yard. 
and then just drop that subplot entirely too. Like that was like something that the the house was doing, like making her feel incestuous toward her stepson, and they just drop it entirely. So there's just it, it's this weird blend of of shit that actually feels like they were trying to be scary with, and then the, that weird like you know the mom wants to do the the stepson thing, and it's just the way they play it out is so ridiculously hilarious. But I really enjoyed this one. Um, I, I thought it had a very fun vibe. I loved that the pacing was great because a lot of the characters were just so absurdly stupid that they were fun to watch. You just had every stereotype in the world. You know, you had the the little girl who gets in touch, or the little kid in general that gets in touch with, like, the supernatural forces. Uh, you had the dorky kid. You had the jockey guy. Uh, the dad with, like, the tragic backstory and, and whatever that ties him into the whole, you know, burning of the house or whatever. Um, and then this... This the stupidest reference to the older movies of them finding a dollhouse of the Amityville house because I mean as I I just assumed they couldn't use the real house or whatever but just I find that one really fun um I think it goes by really quickly just has a great pace and and it seems like the actors in it are having a lot of fun so that was one I just really enjoyed like characters like like the couple um the really metal dude with the hippie chick and they're the ones that like save the day at the end from the demons that are living in the little model house I just I love dollhouse I think that one's really a lot of fun I found um two to have this great exploitive sleazy feel but dollhouse is one that I, I think stands the test of time for repeat viewings like it's one of those movies that you put on while well, you have like a, a bunch of people over and it's a great movie to just kind of, you can talk through it and laugh at it and kind of just enjoy it. It's, it's got a fun, fun pace. And I think it's one of the better ridiculous sequels of the, of the Amityville franchise. If you want to call it that. I thought dollhouse was pretty well put together. I did think they had a lot of random subplot elements from the, from the dude with basketball to the, the father, to the mouse and to the, like also <laughs> they never, they never answered like was who in the, who in their right mind would build this, this monstrosity of a dollhouse and have it be somehow get possessed. And ha like, when did this happen? Like this, the backstory behind the, how this thing became about, correct me if I'm wrong. They never really like, boom, you know, it's bad, you know, it's evil, but they never really set up how it, got there or how it really worked i don't made that i miss something or am i right on that like it's just we know it's evil that i miss something i just know that uh i know that the dad survived uh like a house fire or something and then he built that you know the house that they move into as a family and then finds the amityville house my assumption was that he had lived in the original amityville house that that's the one that burned down and that the dollhouse created itself in preparation for him to be at that new house like you've thought this through way more than the screenwriter did maybe <laughs> i did maybe i did that's that was what i had in my mind it's like well he survived a house fire it must have been like the original amityville house and now this little dollhouse has come to like maybe continue. he survived the explosions <laughs> at the end of three yeah <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I, I think in that dynamic, it made sense. I was amazed by the level of care the uh, sibling was giving to the margaritas. I really appreciated that whole sequence where he's taking the time to make that just perfect and ignoring bad things happening in their room. Um, <laughs> and, and I did I did feel a little bit like they ripped off. I felt like I was watching Creep Show, like the um, one part of Creep Show with like the uh, zombie uh, water people with the, the dad and the part's like oh it feels so much like creepiness in the same kind of way like the, the dad is creepy as like the weird water people in the one creep show people know what I'm talking about but it felt like they, they were taking some from that creep show element it, it seems like the dynamics were there it was neat more explosions 
you know, I think they're getting better to drive. But but at the end of the day, the one thing that really threw me for a loop was this ridiculousness of what the hell are these creatures things at the end? Like, let's just throw ridiculous <laughs> monsters at the end because we can. It's like, wh- what? Like, we haven't seen monsters like that for a little while. Like, to that degree, it's like, but we've never seen anything this nuts. Well, I don't know where this, like, wrote it in. Like, yeah, creepy demon monster things and an alternative reality that's inside the, the small little house thing somehow. I This was like... <laughs> I love, like, the little laser thing when they put the little shield, like, the laser array, <laughs> like, supposedly protecting them. Some of the elements oh, were good, but they, 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 they hit or miss. Some of, like, they went too far. Like, we don't need to see everything. And I think that they – I think that's maybe the one weakness of a lot of the films, especially as they continue to move forward. They kept showing things that were not relevant to making it scary or creepy. We don't need to see weird demon monster at the end of the film to make it scary or creepy. So that's I my – I love that, though, because it uh... – I love that because it looked like a Dio music video. This was the last one that came out on video. So then the the franchise, as it was, kind of went into hibernation until the 2005 remake, when Michael Bay's Platinum Dunes, for whatever re- reason, decided that they were going to make a remake of it. Here, here's the thing. While I didn't like the first film, the first film is all about how much you don't see. The Amityville Horror remake is all about every single haunted house cliche, ghost story cliche that you can all fit into one film. Amityville Horror re- the, the Amityville Horror remake is all about showing you everything the original film didn't show you. And even though it follows the same basic storyline, I actually think it's worse. While I didn't like the original, the remake is terrible. For one thing, Ryan Reynolds is overacting to the point where he is a cartoon character. He is ridiculous in this movie. I, I, he kept trying to be scary, and I kept literally laughing. You, you, you were trying to be scary there, weren't you? <laughs> he, Ryan Reynolds is so out of his depth as George Lutz in this. And Melissa George, she doesn't bring the whole put-upon kind of skittish housewife thing at all. And this one, more than any other, decided to make one change to the overall story. Again, whether you believe it's true or not, the actual story, they made one change that I think proves just how base Michael Bay really is. In the original film and in the original story, George Lutz faces the demon again to go back into the house to save their dog. In this one, it actually has George butchering the dog and then being giddy about it while he's possessed. That actually pissed off George Lutz so much, he sued over that because they were portraying him as a dog killer. That, to me, just kind of has this whole Michael Bay just says, they didn't kill the dog, what can we do to be hardcore? We'll butcher the dog. That is the, that is the way this whole movie approaches the Amityville horror story, and I hated it. I couldn't stand this one. Maybe it's been too long since I've seen it, but I remember enjoying it. And maybe I'm just a Ryan Reynolds fanboy because I, I do consider him to be a pretty damn good actor. I, I liked him in it. I mean, it was a while ago. Like, I think the last time I saw it was a couple of years ago. But I did like it. As, as far as, like, remakes go, I didn't think it was, like, the worst kind. Like, it was nowhere near as bad as other bad Platinum Dunes movies like The Hitcher or or the Friday the 13th remake or the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Like, I did I thought this one brought some decent things to the table. Uh, I, I don't mind um, some of the some of the showing stuff. I, I thought some of the atmosphere was all right. It didn't look as uh, as green and ridiculously sepia as a lot of the other Platinum Dunes movies look. 
Storyline-wise, it borrowed a, maybe a little bit too much from Poltergeist, but I didn't think it was anywhere near like one of the worst ones. Um, it's it's one that I might go back and revisit just to see if I still like it as much as I do like four or five years ago. But I don't know. I, I didn't uh, I didn't mind this one. Definitely not better than the than the first one, or especially Dollhouse or two. But I thought it was okay for for a remake. It was it was not half bad. So we all know that Michael Bay saw the third film's ending and like. I need to remake that first movie from that. We all know that happened. But more importantly, I think the movie was actually an exact example of of the pieces that need to be cut out from the first film to make it run quicker. I mean, it was almost a half an hour shorter than the original. That said, though, Darren, if you take off the opening and closing credits, the movie's only an hour 25 as is. The movie's only an hour 16 minus credits. How the hell do you get away with releasing a theatrical Mega Millions movie at an hour 16 minus credits in 2005? You don't. Uh, I think that's the one of the big thing that really hurts the story. It, it felt almost rushed. Uh, it didn't feel – it felt like you were missing pieces, and you had pieces that were inappropriate or not really fully attached, but it felt very rushed. And I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense for today's world. They should have had a little bit more time to build the pacing. I think that that's maybe one of the pieces, and maybe somewhere between the original and this one, timing would have made a lot more sense. I think that the the remake is solid. I think it definitely the ending is a little bit more intense uh, in some ways than the original. I feel like it did some things better and some things worse. It traded one for the other. Um, I don't like the weird other world stuff that they did. They tried to add, like you said, show too much. I didn't want to see the ghost girl. I didn't want to see the weird stuff on the ceiling. I didn't want to see the other room in the basement. Those things seemed unnecessary to the storytelling and just made it very confusing. The boat ending was kind of interesting and the boat tie-in to everything was kind of interesting. I think it's an homage to the earlier films with with the, the drownings and stuff. I can appreciate that. One thing I really didn't like was the fact that they overlit the exterior of the houses all the time. The exterior of the house was so bright with this blue and everything else. It's like, okay, you've got giant lights on this house. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel scary overdoing it. So I think in some ways their stylization was too much, and in some ways they missed the bar by simply just not making the story a little bit less intense and a little bit slower, meaning so you have a slower burn. You needed a little bit more of that. The first one had it. The remake did not, but the, the original had a little bit too much. So take that as you will. Well, this film didn't do bad at the box office. $19 million budget made $108 million, but critics savaged it for basically what we were saying. It's just, at best, an average haunted house movie. At best. Nobody wanted that in 2005. It's arguably one of the most unnecessary remakes out there. Who in 2005 was begging for an Amityville Horror remake? (laughs) Yeah, nobody I can think of. Exactly. Remember what I said about Amityville Curse, how they found out that since Amityville is a real place, you can't copyright that. For some reason, other than that weird Canadian TV movie video, whatever, nobody had jumped on that until 2011. Since 2011, there have been five more Amityville movies all made by places such as The Asylum and New Image and these low-budget, you know, fly-by-night video companies. We've had The Amityville Haunting, The Amityville Asylum, Amityville Death House, The Amityville Playhouse, and Amityville The Reawakening. I haven't seen any of these, but I've seen the trailers for all of them. They look god-awful, and they look like exactly what we were saying. Absolute cash-ins. 
that said, hey, you can't copyright Amityville, I'm making an Amityville sequel. That's what all of these feel like to me. They feel like absolute cash-ins. I think most people out there would, if you said Amityville sequels, they'd go, how many are there? And if you told them that there were nine films in this franchise, I think a lot of people would be knocked on their ass. They'd go, nine? <laughs> like, yeah, nine. In a weird way, taking all the ripoffs into account, other than witchcraft, this is the longest-running horror franchise ever. Does the name really carry the weight that it maybe did in the 80s? I mean, maybe in the 80s and 90s, you're going, oh, we're making a new Amityville movie. People went, ooh. Nowadays, you say Amityville, are people going to go, oh, yeah, are they going to go, huh? I don't know. Maybe to uh, maybe to, to genre fans in general, it does. I don't. I don't think like casual horror viewers know too much about it. I might be wrong about that, but uh, I don't know. I think I think to people who who grew up on this kind of stuff and or who are more well versed in in horror know of know of the Amityville stuff because I think it's kind of it's one you sort of find out about after you've you've you know enjoyed stuff like Exorcist, Omen, and and stuff like that, and then you go, ooh, what's this Amityville horror thing? Whereas I think casual viewers probably don't know a whole lot about it. You know, th these are more people that are into maybe uh, stuff like in Insidious and, and the other movies that have been coming out. So I think in the end's more of a, I wouldn't say a diehard fan thing, but definitely more people that are well-versed in, in horror in general that will probably know about Amityville. Well, to me, as far as I'm concerned, the Paranormal Activity movies are unofficial Amityville re or unofficial Amityville sequels. Tell me that they don't <laughs> feel like they really are Jason Blum's version of going, look, I made an Amityville movie. Where could people find Peter in his own little haunted house? Peter, you have a haunted little demon laser dollhouse, don't you? Of course I do. I'm in it right now. That's where I'm recording this episode. Uh, you can find me uh, slaying demons in blue and red neon lights with a ponytail and a beard for some reason, and a leather vest on uh, Twitter at Cinematica, YouTube, The Cinemasticus, Facebook, The Cinemasticus, and, and you can find me doing my Amityville dollhouse demon slang as well over on at uh, 1201beyond.com with my hippie girlfriend, Josh Hadley. Darren, where, where can people find you with whatever cursed object you happen to have? Hey, you can always find me uh, at Twitter, Darren underscore Orange. It's probably the easiest way to locate me. Otherwise, if anyone has any questions, when have anything directly sent to me, you can always email me at Darren at RDS.com. Have, have a happy holiday of Halloweening, everyone. I'm looking at the Amityville sequels as, what if Friday the 13th, the series, kept going? <laughs> you can find me with whatever cursed object. Maybe I've got the cursed butt plug from the Drome promo. I don't know. <laughs> at at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And guys, email us and l let us know if we took a hit for you or if you guys are going to now check out the Amityville movies, the real ones or not. Let us know. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a happy Halloween, guys.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.